Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. China released its first white paper on law-based cyberspace governance on Thursday, introducing China's wisdom and solutions in this field. The white paper says China has formed a cyber legislation framework with the constitution as the foundation, supported by laws, administrative regulations, departmental rules, local regulations and local administrative rules. Over the years, China has already issued more than 140 laws. So why do we still need this white paper. Why does it matter? What is the best way to comprehend its significance? In what areas does China's cyberspace governance still face challenges? Now, the paper also suggests to increase cross-border exchanges and cooperation in the field. What has been done in this regard? To answer all of these questions, I'm pleased to be joined from Beijing by Professor Zheng Yi, Director of the Research Center for AI Ethics and Governance at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Professor Zheng, thank you very much for joining us. So the white paper is titled China's Law-Based Cyberspace Governance in the New Era. It is the first white paper, as I said, of such kind in the country. Now, China was first officially connected to the World Wide Web in 1994. And since then, again, as I said, more than 140 laws or regulations have been drafted. And in the white paper, it says China is committed to building a multilateral, democratic and transparent global internet governance system together with other countries. So in general, what message does this white paper deliver to the world? I think it is really essential that the document actually uh, release the China's vision on cyberspace. I, I think this is a really important how China uh, sees and perceives cyberspace in general. So I'm very glad to see that uh, actually China, the Chinese government, and also the people in here perceive that the, the development of cyberspace is really you know, an extension uh, of human civilization. Uh, and it's a research result and the platform to extend you know, the future of uh, human civilization. I think that's really, really essential. But what, uh, what you talk about the vision for China's cyberspace governance, exactly what it is, because the white paper says, and I quote again, the development and governance of the internet is a goal shared by all countries for the benefit of humanity and the rule of law uh, proved to be essential to internet governance. So what is the vision of China's cyberspace governance? I think, like I said, the, the vision is that this is a platform not only for development, but also uh, you have to keep them um, healthy uh, and stable uh, for the development. So we need a system, an architecture uh, that ensure uh, the platform is developing uh, for human good and for everyone. So I think that's essential. Mm. So what kind of role uh, has China played and can China play in terms of uh, cyber governance as a member of the international community? I think the answer could be very simple. That is to share, to contribute and to complement uh, with each other. Uh, so China is definitely a huge country. Uh, so for development of the rule of laws, the system overall, actually you need top-down designs 
uh, that goes for National People's Congress to develop the personal information protection law. Well, for some of the efforts, you have to do it in a, a bottom-up approach, uh, just like the Shanghai and Shenzhen trying on data regulation and data securities. So you see that uh, the, both of them are really uh, effective in how to actually combine these different approaches and also different angles, just like what you mentioned, more than 140 documentation. Actually, they cover very different perspectives for cyberspace, like the network infrastructure, and also the data part and how to use it, and also for some vertical domain uh, applications and how to regulate them. So this is overall the China experience actually that can be shared to the world. Actually, I also still remember that when I was a UNESCO ad hoc expert group member uh, to contribute to the global recommendation of uh, AI, actually uh, China proposed uh, living peacefully. And this is widely shared uh, in Japan, Korea, and South Africa when they talk about interconnectedness. So contributing to non-Western values to the world, I think this is one of the uh, duties for countries like China, but well, not what limited exactly to do China. You mean, what exactly do you mean by uh, the, the, the Chinese um, culture, Eastern culture? In what specific example can you best illustrate that? I think the, like, like a living harmony um, and a human community of shared future that talk about the interconnectedness. Yes, but in terms of uh, specific legislation, what can you say is something that is uniquely Oriental or Eastern that contributes, that's, that uh, complement the current structure in the, in the world or generally considered you know, uh, standard legislation for the Internet? I think the overall, so we argue about, uh, you know, personals, individuals' uh, rights on, on the web, uh, but actually the Chinese culture talk about, you know, the network, the interconnectedness, that you're in this network, you're in this sub cyberspace together with other people, so your behavior and how you deal with these uh, issues in cyberspace is a network effect, not only about yourself. So the interconnectedness and the uh, relation of self is actually some uh, cultural uh, perspective that China brings uh, to the world. Specifically, can you give a little bit more details, for instance, in terms of personal data infringement or, or cyber violence? These are also problems that China uh, is faced with, I think, as in other countries. How specifically has China dealt with these issues through legislation? What experience can we share with the world? Yeah. Uh, it's truly um, important, of course, to actually protect the personal data and uh, information uh, in the cyberspace. So this is why uh, recently uh, China, the, the, the National um, People's Congress, released the personal information uh, protection law uh, to regulate them. But not only that, actually China, uh, it's like three years ago, actually, China also released the information protection uh, for children. So I think that's uh, a big step towards uh, the vulnerable groups, uh, which is uh, essential trying. Mm. And also the China experience uh, for govern the APPs on, on the web is really something that uh, need to be mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, through these uh, three years, uh, the Ministry of uh, Industry and Information Technology, they actually have investigated more than three million different uh, APPs and found that 3,000 of them has to be put off the shelf 
for refinement uh, before they release a much better version because uh, they have infringed on personal uh, data protection. Uh, so I think that's very concrete um, efforts that China has has been taken, and also this experience uh, I think is fascinating to for for the world uh, to to learn from uh, how to regulate the web apps uh, in general. So how does the Chinese government strike the balance between guaranteeing personal freedom, in, including the freedom of expression, freedom of using all of these applications and internet platforms, and on the other hand, protecting um, the, the stability of the society, the safety of personal data, the children's rights, those of the underprivileged? How does China strike that balance? Is it a different uh, game than what is done by governments in, in the developed countries? Um, I still remember that when AI was introduced uh, to uh, recognize um, students in the classroom, uh, that, that was one of the trying in China, but also all over the world. And then later, Ministry of Education in China says that you have to minimize uh, the, the use of AI. If you don't really have to use them in the classroom, uh, don't, don't do it. So proportionality, that means you, you, you don't really need AI everywhere. So you, you, need, uh, you need AI as necessary. So this is the proportionality uh, principles is something uh, that China has been experiencing and, and also contributing uh, to, the, to the world. We shouldn't make AI uh, everywhere uh, well necessary. And also you have to keep the data secure mm. and safe as a social infrastructure. What about the state actor? For instance, uh, the, the government, the public sector collected a lot of information uh, during the COVID period, you know, people's whereabouts, um, their facial recognition and so on and so forth. What is happening to those data? Is China doing what it is preaching in terms of, uh, you know, protecting personal data? Four ministries uh, in China released the, the use of the data during uh, COVID and it announces that the data uh, during COVID-19 has to be used just for these purposes. Um, you cannot extend the use of these data uh, after this period. So I'm very glad to see personally, I don't really have to use the uh, house code uh, right. um, now. Okay, um, time is short. Let, let me briefly touch on the, uh, the latest uh, catchphrase on everybody's lip, which is the you know, chat uh, GPT. We have the latest version GPT-4 and, and we have the Chinese equivalent, which is called uh, Wenxing Yian or Ernie Bot in some people's recognition. So what is China doing in addressing the challenges in, of IP protection in those applications? Because it's very subtle, right? Right, exactly. So uh, AI-generated uh, contents is a, is a new uh, is a new coming for the uh, for the world. Uh, I'm very glad that that last year, um, the Cyberspace Administration of um, China released the regulation for uh, deep generation, which is exactly on AI-generated contents, not only to regulate you know video generation, but also cover something like this Erniebot and also uh, GTP. Uh, for um, trying. So that's the first try in China and, and probably the, one of the first in the world from the, from a, uh, from the, gov from the government uh, to regulate 
uh, deep generation mm. and AI generated content. Mm. But it's not enough. You have to take care of the intellectual property through AI generated contents, but a lot that has to be discussed all over the world. Mm -hmm. So this is an ongoing process. Uh, finally, is. yeah, I want to just mention that the US also announced its national security strategy early March with a goal, quote unquote, to secure the full benefits of a safe and secure digital ecosystem for all Americans. And the strategy also says that China now presents the broadest, most active and most persistent threat to both government and private sector network and is the only country with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military and technological power to do so. China is not clearly targeting its cyberspace uh, governance against any specific third country. How do you look at the difference uh, we're seeing here? Um, I think we have to talk about the, the cyberspace uh, sovereignty in, in, in here because every country has its own digital uh, sovereignty. Although China uh, puts a uh, heavy eye on this uh, concept, well, mm -hmm. actually, it's a world consensus for now. For example, in, in the regulation of the cyberspace in Germany, in Japan, New Zealand, and also in Netherlands, and even NATO, uh, through their Tallinn Manual 2.0, they talk about the uh, cyberspace 70 quite a lot. So uh, that means every country has its own digital sovereignty and you cannot infringe on others. So I think, like, like I said at the beginning, that the cyberspace is for uh, everyone. So the China's role and vision is to connect with the rest of the world, share our experiences, but not to have supremacies over uh, others cyberspace. Not just sovereignty. for the Chinese, not just for the benefits no, no. of the Chinese. No, it's global. Yeah. Okay. Thank True. you very much, Professor Zheng Yi, Director of the Research Center for AI Ethics and Governance at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. We'll take a short we'll break. We work for sustainable development over the surface space. Yeah, thank you. thank you very much. We'll take a short break and when we come back, we'll take a look at the problems behind the Silicon Valley Bank and uh, the Swiss Central Bank uh, um, measure to help stem the problems of uh, potential bank collapse in Europe. Stay with us. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. On Thursday, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said that the federal government is committed to protecting U.S. bank deposits following the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and uh, Signature Bank. On the same day, the Swiss banking giant Credit Suisse said it would borrow up to 54 billion U.S. dollars from the Swiss Central Bank to shore up liquidity. So what are the underlying structural causes of the bank failures? Did regulators not look? I was pleased to be joined from Darwin, Australia by Darrow Guppy financial market analyst and from Beijing by Michael Powers, the Zurich Insurance Group Chair Professor at Tsinghua University's School of Economics and Management. I started by asking them about their reactions to the jitters over the stability of Credit Suisse. It's certainly a contagion factor driven by what's happening in the United States. It's a loss of faith in the system rather than an actual weakness. So the problems of Credit Suisse are very, very different to the problems that we saw with SVB in America and the other collapses that are taking place. Professor Powers, what is your take? I would agree with Daryl that the problems of Credit Suisse are, are, are quite different, but they also um, have been 
uh, on a longer term. That is, the, they've existed. People have known about these problems for a while. So it, it's different in a number of a number of ways. But when people become concerned about bank failures in one place, they look for weaknesses in others. And I think that explains some of the attention that, that is being turned to Credit Suisse and the banking industry as a whole. All right. Well, while people are scrambling to find solutions or, or, or measures are being made to inject confidence into the sector, let's take a look at uh, the underlying causes the, the, the context has been, from my observational understanding, is that the Fed has been print, uh, inundating the system with in central banks with cash, with uh, money, money, money. And then there is this inflation that came up, which is uh, the highest in, in, in recent times on record. And then in order to curb that inflation, the Fed and central banks started to uh, hike interest rates in a very short period of time. And I understand that has led to the difficulty in some of the regional banks, because the simple formula is when interest rates goes up, the yields on bonds go down and vice versa. So that is the situation that SVB has experienced. How do you, um, Daryl, again, how do you rate my assessment of the situation and how do you characterize the underlying issues that had led to SVB and signatures collapse? I think you've summarized that very well, but there are some additional factors. This in part is a consequence of the 2020 Fed decision to reduce bank reserve requirements from 10% to zero. Now that means that banks are not required to keep any amount of their assets, in other words, your deposits, in cash or liquid equivalents to be able to service requested withdrawals. So this is one of the reasons why even a minor bank run has the potential to be a disaster. But they, for they experienced the 2008 bank. financial crisis, they would understand. And, and from common sense, you would understand when, when you have no requirement for deposits, the, the risk for bank run is very high. Are we, are we trying to put common sense and President Trump's actions in the same sentence? That seems a little contradictory. This was a reaction to the COVID breakout. People at the time warned that these would be some of the consequences. So we are seeing these chickens, as it were, coming home to roost. Now, we to, to mix my metaphors, we can't say it's a canary in the coal mine. It's not quite that far. They are examples of a looseness in monetary policy, a change in interest rates policy, but these changes in reserve requirements have created a structural weakness within the system. Professor Powers, what is your assessment of uh, the, the the importance of the different factors that we just laid out, the excessive liquidity, the, the control of the rates by force in a very, very short period of time, and the uh, the taking away of uh, reserve ratio totally? I, I think that those are all very important components. I'm actually glad Daryl mentioned them because I, I would like to focus on, on something a little bit different. Uh, there's much discussion of the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank in this context, uh, sort of the proximate cause raising interest rates, I'd like to turn to the failure of the Federal Reserve Bank as a regulator of banks in the United States. It was the primary federal regulator of SVB. Now, there also was a California state regulator involved, but SVB had all sorts of red flags on its financial statements. It, it had grown in deposits very, very rapidly from about two, uh, 50 billion in 2018 to over 220 billion in, in 2022. This is a number one signal for financial services regulators. I'm a former insurance regulator. This is something that you, you when there's a very, very rapid growth, you keep a close eye on that particular firm. In addition, once you look at the firm, so you see are that you they saying have that the a, bank, are you saying the bank did something irregular or did the regulators do not Absolutely. Look? 
Well, both, both. The, the bank w- w- was, was, had placed itself in a very risky situation. It had a very, a very high proportion of non-retail depositors. That is, uh, retail depositors would be the ordinary people who's, who's, uh, who, who's, whose deposits are, are insured or largely covered by the, by the federal um, guarantees. But it had tech startups with millions of dollars that were I- individually that were, were not going to be covered. So if there's any problem, these people are going to leave immediately. That's, that's part of what makes it a higher risk for a run in the bank. In addition, the bank was holding uh, very limited cash reserves, less than 50% of what banks typically were holding. And then finally, it had made a decision to invest a huge amount of its assets, the bank that is, more, uh, more than 50% of its assets in long-term risk-free bonds, um, which might seem fine at the time that they did it, but they locked themselves into it um, with this, this group of non-retail depositors so I'm... that if there are any kind of interest uh, rise in interest rates, they were at extremely high risk of a problem. I understand. But when you have interest rates at uh, persistently low levels, even sub-zero levels, isn't it a uh, natural thing to do for some banks to, to seek higher yields and invest in these things, not foreseeing that the interest rate would go up you know, so much so quickly. Okay, first, first of all, it might be an ordinary or, or very reasonable thing for a layperson to to do that. Yes, but banks were not doing that. SVB is was out. It was something of an outlier in this case in terms of the, the amount of its assets that it had invested in in, in long term risk free bonds. So it clearly had um, indicated a number of red flags that should have been picked up by regulators. I can't, you know, the California regulators had the primary responsibility, but state regulatory agencies are often underfunded. Really, the Federal Reserve Bank should have noticed this is a very large bank that should have been paying attention. All right. Um, Daryl, do you think SVB is the only bank or one of the few banks that were doing this or potentially there are other cases that are just not known that had not you know blown up yet and uh how about other regulators in other states in the, of the united states i think there are two aspects of this first of all yes certainly there are other banks that are going to come under increasing pressure as interest rates rise they will have made similar poor management decisions but we also need to remember that bank collapses are relatively common in the u.s particularly compared to other countries we all, the difference between now and 2008, what we're talking about is mismanagement of various types in an individual bank, whereas in 2008, it was driven primarily by a toxic derivative product, those collateralized see, debt yeah. obligations or CDOs. How do, how do you look at things going forward? I mean, for instance, uh, first of all, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation has decided to, to back all uninsured customers. That, some say, is going to lead greater instability in the banking system. Do you think that is the case? This is one, Daryl. And secondly, there, there are people who are saying when, when rates are controlled in the market, a more problem is going to be exposed. First of all, we need to remember that federal deposit insurance does not fully apply to business accounts. It applies to personal accounts. And even then, where business is able to sneak around the regulations, the amount that's covered is pretty small, 250000 I think, from memory. So if you've got a, a $25 million loan from the bank or a, a relationship, that's not going to save you. That's the important fact to remember. So yes, there will be increasing bank failures. What's important is how many banks come to the rescue of those bank failures so that the burden on the state coming to the rescue 
is reduced. At this stage, we don't see it being a repeat of 2008. Yes, there'll be nervousness. We're in a scary movie. Every movie, we're ready to nervous, we're ready to jump when something jumps out beside us. It exaggerates any type of problem that's already existing in a bank. And we saw that with Credit Suisse overnight, and that's going to work through uh, financial system in relation to banks in particular over the next few days. And Professor Powell, your take briefly? Uh, yes, I, I agree with what, what Daryl has said. It, um, in, in fact, if it were not for the fear that these depositors of SVB had, the bank might might have um, continued to, to, to survive. Um, if, if, for example, President Biden you know, had had foresight or you know, he could see the future and had made a statement a week before that all of these um, accounts would be covered regardless of whether they exceeded the, the $250,000 limit or not, um, there would have been no need for the run on the back end, um, and it could have it could have persisted. So it, it's very different in that um, I, I think fear and uh, you know the the, the run the, the the principle of a run on the bank and uh, this could occur in other places. That is a much bigger component than what we saw in 2008, where there were really systemic problems with risk that was being ignored and you know not recognized by rating agencies, not well understood, and not well insured. Finally, Daryl, um, the problem is still there. I mean, the Fed and central banks are still likely to continue to raise uh, interest rates because inflation is persistently high, and yet financial institutions are put into this situation. By the way, you know, the, the printing money to solve problem formula seems to have always is still in place. How do you look at the, um, the underlying dilemmas um, that are not addressed at this moment? One might call it um, US-style destructive capitalism in the sense that the rise in interest rates is going to strangle the weakest in that sector. And the hope is that provides merger and acquisition opportunities for other banks to buy out those weaker banks. What we have to be careful of is that those companies, particularly in the tech-heavy sector, who have been impacted by the SVB um, collapse, is that they will need to refinance. And that becomes more expensive as interest rates rise. That's going to have an impact on the trajectory and the momentum of tech development in the United States. And that's probably the most important outcome of what's happening at the moment, rather than a, a general weakness within the banking sector. Okay, we have to leave it there. Time is up. Uh, many thanks to Daryl Guppy, financial market analyst, and Michael Powell's Zurich Insurance Group Chair Professor at Tsinghua University School of Economics and Management. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Liu Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point and have a good weekend. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. <laughs> Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Deutsche Bahn. Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world.